0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and this is a special bonus edition of Inside Economics. Uh, we are going to be tackling the question of Russia, Ukraine, and what it all means uh, for the global economy. And I'm joined, uh, well, we're missing one of our co-hosts, Ryan Sweet, who's uh, struggling to get in. I'm sure he'll figure it out at some point. And uh, also Chris Dridis. Hi, Chris, the Deputy Chief Economist. Welcome.
1: Hi, Mark. Thanks.
0: Good to have you. And... Uh, The man of the hour, Garav Ganguly. Garav is our colleague in Europe, and he is the head of EMEA Economics, European, Middle East, and Africa. And uh, welcome, Garav.
2: Thank you, Mark. Hi, Chris. Good to be on the show.
0: Yeah. And we have a lot to talk about. Uh, As I said, uh, we are uh, focused on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, I thought about using the word kerfuffle, but that doesn't feel... uh, uh, significant no. enough right so i should say no, conflict yeah conflict. incursion i think incursion. Uh, oh, i think potential incursion. biden
1: said incursion
0: but. he used the word incursion okay yeah uh, but
2: that I, might I, be I, a little you too, too strong a <laughs> i sort of flip between saying incursion and invasion depending on how i feel about the whole thing oh well
0: yeah good point okay well, there is a dark down.
2: there is a dark view in europe robert Habeck, vice chancellor of Germany said that we're facing a prospect of war on Europe's soil for the first time in 70 years. So certainly on this side of the Atlantic, some of the views around uh, this conflict and the escalation of this conflict quite somber.
0: Yeah, uh, appropriately so. Hey, one other uh, nomenclature issue. Do you call the capital of Ukraine Kiev? I, I believe that's the way the Ukrainians pronounce it, or Kiev. I believe that's the way the russians pronounce it how do you pronounce the capital
2: well i should probably indicate my sympathy and say kiev
0: yeah okay that's my instinct here uh and i think most ma- major media outlets at least here in the u.s are now saying kiev you know because it's the way the ukrainians pronounce the capital's name okay so that w- we we set the ground rules here so it's an incursion until it becomes an invasion and it's a um the capital is Kyiv. Okay. And oh, I should say, amia i said European, Middle East, and Africa. And uh, Gaurav, you, you joined us uh, now. Wow. Almost uh, five, six months ago now, I think. Five months ago, I think. Five and yeah, a bit yeah, months very ago. very good. Yeah. Well, we got you on the hot seat here. So uh, thanks for doing all this work. And we've got a lot planned with regard to our uh, efforts to analyze this, uh, con- this incursion. Uh, this is the first... Uh, Thing that we're doing this podcast uh, so we give you a sense of how we're thinking about things uh, we do have a webinar uh, grav is going to lead the way that comes uh, next week i think february 24th invitations are going out for that we are running uh, a number of different scenarios uh, obviously a lot of uncertainty here who knows how this is going to play out so we are considering different scenarios we're running that through our global model and producing uh, uh uh, forecasts uh, based on those different assumptions around what happens in Ukraine and Russia, and putting that into databases for people to use, and that'll be available sometime next week as well. And finally, uh, Gaurav, I think you said you're writing a, a white paper to kind of explain all of this. That's so
2: that's right. right. You, got, you got the timeline exactly right. Um, okay. and, and, so by and the end
0: of next week, we pretty much should have all our analysis available for clients to use and for people to take a look at. But Uh, Here we are, uh, and, um, you know, how are things going there? Can you, uh, Gaurav, just give us a lay of the land politically? I mean, I I know it's very difficult because it's very fluid, a lot of things changing this morning. Here we are talking the morning uh, Eastern time of February 15th, Tuesday, February 15th, and already a lot of news today. So uh, how are you thinking about things? What's the lay of the land uh, with regard to this issue?
2: Well, as I I said a, a moment earlier, at least in some quarters in europe the mood is quite sombre and it is it is a, it is a fairly worrying situation um some some say that this is fairly par for the course that about every year this time for several years putin sent troops close to the ukrainian border but what's happened this year i think sort of makes some of the events of previous years pale in comparison uh, we've had seen, we've seen significant troop buildup for the last couple of months we we worried about troops in the eastern part of the country first But now we're increasingly also worried about troop buildup in the northern part of the country, fairly close to Kyiv. Now Putin says that that's um, all been planned and signaled in advance. These are joint troop movements with the Belarus, typically conducted around this time of year, but the timing is curious and the troop movements have been quite alarming, um, at least from a NATO perspective. Now When we look at at some of the things, some of the demands Putin has made, it seems like they are quite extreme. So he he issued a a set of demands to NATO, as you're aware, um, as I think everybody's aware now, everybody's following this quite closely, um, asking for NATO to pull back their troop movements and basically revert to their 1997 position. Now that's unacceptable to NATO, I think. So if that sets the bar (laughs) below which he's not willing to negotiate, then that's a bar that's just impossible to meet. NATO's advance in successive stages since since the fall of the Soviet Union, and with with plans and it had actually planned to include the Ukraine as part of NATO, which I think is completely unacceptable to Putin. But equally, to roll back to 1997 would be absolutely impossible. So then that means that if that's the bar that he said, and if that's not a bar that's ever going to be met, then where do we go from here? I think that's the key. That's the key question. There are a couple of possibilities that would still avoid conflict, and I think that is what's uh, keeping up hope in Europe, that we don't have to necessarily, necessarily go down the route of an incursion, far less a full-blown invasion, that there are diplomatic possibilities uh, available to, to Europe and to Russia. Uh, and that probably might even be reflective of the comments made by Foreign Minister Lavrov yesterday when he said that it would be possible to find a diplomatic solution to which Putin gave his assent. Uh, now, that, that probably focuses on what's been happening in the Eastern part of the country ever since 2014.
0: Can I ask, so there's been a couple pieces of, I I guess, good news. I mean, markets this morning are responding positively. You mentioned Lavrov, the foreign minister, uh, saying something publicly to Putin about, you know, perhaps there's a, a diplomatic path forward. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but that's kind of roughly what he said, which seems somewhat encouraging. And then we hear that uh, the Russians have announced that they're pulling back some of the troops on the border. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they are or not, but they are announced that they are. Uh, that's what their intention is. And markets are interpreting that positively. Stock prices are up. Oil prices are back down. How do you handicap all of that? I mean, what, what do you think is going on? Is this as positive as people seem to think? Or Obviously, we don't know, but what's your sense of that?
2: So as you said, we, we don't know it's it's really hard to get a line of sight into what's going on in Putin's head at the moment. It's probably requires somebody with considerably greater, you know, strategic acumen than I have. But if I if I look through some of if I look through some of the noise that's been that's been going on over the last few days, the kind of noise that you outlined very, very clearly, Mark, then I'd say that the general tone of of the discussion has turned a bit darker in the last week. So I guess maybe a week ago I would have said there's a 50-50 chance of. Uh, some sort of incursion into Ukraine versus um, troops actually pulling back and some kind of negotiated settlement. And I get the feeling now it's a bit worse than that. Hmm. that there's there's so, still a significant path to no incursion, which might be somewhere closer to 40, 45%, but it's probably the balance of probability is probably shifted over to some kind of incursion, 55%. Interesting.
0: So, so what you're saying is uh, the improvement in market sentiment is misplaced in your view. I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's, you're, it's, your thinking has gone in the other direction here.
2: Yeah. And actually, yeah. maybe what we look at is not just the recent, the today's pullback in markets, but the fact that there's been a bit of extra volatility in markets because we're seeing in the last few days, because we're seeing pronouncements go in either direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: I um, guess it's a question of degree as well, right? Or exactly. It's not just invade, don't invade. There are different levels of invasion. And it could no, be that markets are interpreting this as a... Perhaps a, a bit of a uh, a concession, but that doesn't certainly doesn't rule out an invasion of the Dumbass region, for example. So maybe the probability of a full takeover is lower. But uh, did, I think that's you right. Agree, or is that uh, are you still that's an point. pessimistic? You're markets about
0: are focused on the you know the the the, the tail. tail risk, and they're saying, oh, that looks less likely, but it doesn't mean that the probability that they might actually invade the Donbass region. And we should will come back, maybe we'll let Garov explain all that, but yeah. that's a less aggressive incursion or invasion that that feels more likely then. That's kind of what you're yeah. saying.
1: I, I I think I yeah, I, I guess yeah, it's a right. question to Garov. Is that uh, is that what you're interpreting? Or when you say you're a little bit more pessimistic, is it yeah, the that so that, tail or is it in the middle?
2: I think that's right. I'm probably a little even a little bit more pessimistic than what you've just outlined, Chris. That I kind of feel okay. that that tail kind of scenario is probably roughly the same. Maybe it's gone down a bit. There are some bits within the tail that are very remote. And I'll come, to come back to those later. In fact, one of our scenarios touches on some of the really remote things that could happen in the tail. But I think you're right in that markets are probably thinking that um, some kind of inversion maybe into the Don- Donbass region is, is possibly slightly more likely, but that's palatable.
0: Can I... Uh, Actually, uh, outcomes, economic need- outcomes
2: for so those would be palatable.
0: We need to go. We're going to go down these different scenario paths shortly and make that very explicit and clear in people's minds in terms of how we're framing this in terms of scenarios and probabilities. But uh, before we do that, and again, this is these questions are you know obviously who knows, but I'm just curious what you think, and and Chris as well, what is the end game here? What do you think is going on really? Uh, why is Putin? doing this, what does he hope to accomplish, you know, at the end of the day here? Do you have a sense of that? Or do you have any view on that?
2: Well, I've been been thinking about this long and hard and trying to figure out what exactly Putin wants. And I gave up on economics at this point and started reading history (laughs) (laughs) and discovered the really long, rich history that the Ukrainian people have and their long connection with different parts of Europe from Poland and Lithuania through to Russia. But then I kind of fast forwarded all of that to about 2010, 2011, when Ukraine first expressed an interest, started to express a serious interest in getting closer to the EU. And there was talk of trade association with the EU, which ultimately led to um, Russia interfering in Ukrainian politics and having the Ukrainian premier removed, which led to people's protests and subsequently then incursion into Donetsk and Lugansk and the Crimean takeover. Or supporting the separatists in Donetsk and Lugansk in the eastern part of the country and the Crimean takeover. So that was very clear that Putin was very unhappy with the state of affairs with Ukraine getting closer and closer to Europe, not just NATO's proposal to actually extend its, 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 its front further eastwards and envelope the Ukraine. So all of that gets somehow Ukraine um, you know, having performed as an independent state in 1971 after the fall of the Soviet Union now actually being absorbed into Europe, absorbed into NATO seems to be completely against Putin's thinking. Um, he feels, I think he feels that he needs to have a leave his legacy. And in his legacy, it's got to be that Ukraine or the Russian part of Russian favored part of Ukraine actually returns to the fold, which does make me think that there's still a significant possibility that he will be content with an outcome where that happens without necessarily having to send his troops in. And there are different ways we can get onto that later. There are different ways in which that can that can actually happen. Um, so that's that's what I think his motivation is. I think that by setting the bar so high with NATO, he may have—I um, mean, he he may have miscalculated, or he may not. To be honest, it's really hard to tell. But I don't think that's what he's after. He's not after yeah. NATO actually going back to its 1997 border because I'm, I'm sure he must surely recognize that that's that's completely completely impossible.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's 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 really not about NATO per se. It's just really about the uh, eastern part of the Ukraine, which is, in his view, historically, that's been Russia. I mean, that's part of Russia. And therefore, I want that back. Uh, I
2: think so I, that's right. I think it's about more than just the eastern part of Ukraine, it's about getting back the Russian people's the Russian speaking part of Ukraine, back into Russia and, mm-hmm. and making sure that Ukraine. I guess if that means that he's got to play a fairly destructive game to make sure that the Ukraine doesn't move towards the EU and or towards NATO, then he'll do that.
0: Yeah, and I suppose also he maybe it's just a test. I mean, maybe he didn't really expect to gain anything on, with regard to NATO, but hey, you know, why not probe here a little bit? I mean, just see how they react and what, you know, maybe uh, there will be some, it would create some fissures between NATO allies, between, you know, the Germans who... Are tied very closely to Russia via, you know, the uh, the natural gas that flows to, to to Germany and the rest of NATO. Uh, maybe, maybe that's part of what he's thinking too.
2: That that, that could well be. That, that could well be. He certainly played played his hand very well in terms of restricting either gas restricting, sorry, gas supplies to to Europe. Yeah, um, taking advantage of the winter season to do that. Um, he also restricted wheat exports, Russian wheat exports, in December. Ostensibly to keep, yeah. ostensibly to preserve domestic uh, consumption, but but actually that's not, that's not been that great for wheat prices either. Uh, and certainly he's gained a lot of really good publicity. If you imagine that Putin has all he's had to do is put a hundred thousand troops near the border with Ukraine, and every single major world leader has flown over to meet him.
1: Yeah, as
2: point. a result, um, yeah. you'll recall you recall that 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 meeting with Macron and the big white table. Mm. <laughs> that's just. Um, yeah. I guess that's just what a picture story. right what a picture I mean, exactly. the, the
0: table yeah. was a football field it looked like yeah, was right. on one end Putin was on one end and macron was on the other. It was pretty pretty bizarre yeah
2: yeah, so um, I think he's, and, and he's managed to he's managed to um show the world that he's prepared to align himself with China and that China is willing to have that and that they are willing to deepen the economic relationship. I don't know what that really means, how meaningful that is in the long run, but at least it's a sign
0: yep.
1: Yeah, of course I think at a minimum, yeah, yeah, I think at a minimum, he's now solidified Ukraine as a buffer state, right? We're not the West is not going to embrace NATO or embrace Ukraine into or bring uh, Ukraine into NATO anytime soon, right? Because of these tensions, so that alone might be enough, right? I just want to make sure that, or he just wants to make sure that uh, mm. Ukraine is is in the middle there as a, as a buffer, doesn't want any troops on his. Yeah, good point. Because uh, they borders. were thinking,
0: they were flirting with becoming part of NATO, I guess. And
1: yeah. It's this, gone back and was, forth over the years. So yeah. uh, I think that is really off the table now. Right. Maybe not explicitly, but implicitly for, right. for the foreseeable right. future.
0: Hey, let's talk about the scenarios then. So uh, I guess uh, th- this is kind of a, if you think about it, a, a tree of possibilities in the kind of the first branches, you know, invasion, no invasion. Right. So how do you think about that, Robin, how do you handicap you know that, that part of the probability tree?
2: So I think um, as I was saying earlier, I've become a bit more pessimistic about the prospects of some kind of incursion into the Ukraine over the last week. whereas a week ago I was much more even about it thinking it's about 50, 50. I now think it may be maybe more like 45, 55 or even 30, 60 on a dark day.
0: 40 um, 60.
2: Oh, sorry, like you're <laughs> yeah, yeah. getting, getting all these, all these probabilities <laughs> in my head. So I kind, of, I kind of veer between these kinds of, uh, this, this sort of a boundary right now. So it's a bit more negative around the possibility of no incursion. But let's be clear that even not sending troops in doesn't mean that Putin's not going to interfere with the Ukraine. Right? So I think the possibility that actually Putin takes his troops back from where they are now that he completely leaves Donetsk and Lugansk alone and doesn't try to interfere with Ukrainian domestic politics and acquiesces to NATO's uh, wishes to enfold Ukraine, virtually zero. There's no way that's going to happen. Yeah. right. Which means that when we talk about no incursion, what we mean, and this speaks to Chris's point, that he's going to continue to interfere with the Ukraine for some time to come. He's going to continue to want to weaken the U- Ukraine's sovereign structure um, the relationship of provinces with with the central government weaken them. Uh, make sure that these provinces become more federalized, that they have uh, greater freedom to align themselves with Russia if they wish, and he'll be willing to you know fight proxy wars or, or or even encourage regime change in order to get it. So that's that's the no invasion scenario, which is not which is not really that great an outlook for the Ukraine.
0: Okay, st- let's stop there for just a second. So w- one question is okay that. I guess that's the most positive possible outcome here that, you know, Russia does not actually invade. Certainly they're going to interfere and, they're, you know, create havoc, but they're not going to invade. If that's the case, what does that mean in terms of, I think the most, you know, the, the kind of the, the benchmark we're using to assess the economic consequences of what's going on there is oil prices. So oil prices, you know, if you look at Brent, which is kind of the globally traded uh, price, that's close to, well, last I looked, was close to 95 bucks a barrel. That feels like that's up $10, $15 a barrel on the Russian news. I mean, it was up anyway because of demand supply dynamics coming out of the pandemic. Demand picked up faster than supply, and there's a lot of things going on with OPEC and North American fracking, and therefore prices were up. But the, the problems in Russia, Ukraine have, added 10, 15 bucks a barrel. For, uh, so my question to you is, that sound about right, and does that come out of price, do you think, if we go down this this more positive scenario of no invasion?
2: I, I, don't, I don't see that it comes down a whole lot if he simply backs his troops away, because there'll always be the fear of some, re- some, some renewed threat. Maybe some of it comes back down, um, as he, there'll be some relief in the market, I guess, as he does this. Um, so, so yeah, I can see some of it coming back down. But overall, he's still going to be very connected with the Ukraine. He's still going to be very interested. Um, but it's less oil that I worry about, to be honest, Mark. It's more European mm. gas that I worry about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and here I think, you know, I, I, I struggle to see the, the stress go away at all, even if he steps back, because Russia has such a strained relationship with Ukraine when it comes to the supply of gas through the Ukraine into Europe. And it's going to do whatever it can, I feel, to simply reduce that supply and deny the Ukraine transit fees from gas. So they're very keen to have Nord Stream come come online. Now, Nord Stream will carry about 55 billion cubic meters a year. That's Nord Stream 2. That will double the entire Nord Stream capacity. Nord Stream 1 has the same capacity. So there'll be an entire 110 billion cubic meters of gas that can flow outside of the Ukraine, directly under the North Sea into Germany. Ukraine, Ukrainian gas, its capacity is currently about 45 billion cubic meters. It carries much less because Gazprom simply refuses to supply the gas via the Ukraine. And I can't see that that pressure goes away, that um, suddenly we'll have full flow of gas through the Ukraine, Europe gets what it needs, um, and maybe even North Stream comes on because Europe feels comfortable with North Stream operating. operating. So I think those pressures remain. Maybe it takes Nord Stream some time to come on, come online. It might be up to the end of the year to get various regulatory approval, etc. Um, and at that point, maybe we start to see gas prices starting to come down. But then we're also going into winter at that point. So if we go through a stressful summer, uh, Europe simply will be going into the next winter in a fairly vulnerable position without enough gas in storage. So I can see pressure on gas remaining for some time. And that's pretty bad from a Europe perspective and inflation in Europe.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, from a, a kind of a parochial um, U.S. perspective, I'm focused on oil, but you know, because gas doesn't these gas natural gas markets are lo- generally local markets. So, what the price here of natural gas it's it's elevated a little bit because of what's going on in Europe uh, through liquefied natural gas demand that kind of thing. But it's pretty much on the margin. Is here and in in much of the rest of the world the economic fallout from what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, is through oil prices. But in Europe, you're right, it's mostly about natural gas, because, correct me if I'm wrong, I think about a third of European gas comes from Russia. And just to level set for the listener, the main uh, way of getting natural gas from Russia to Europe is through the Nordstrom, Nord, uh, I'm sorry, I, I just- Well, there are four pipelines, Mark. Four, four, four pipelines. There are
2: four principal yeah. pipelines that carry gas from Russia into Europe, and you're right, it's about a third of Europe's gas requirement. The rest comes from places like Norway, uh, Algeria, some from LNG terminals, and a a declining part of it from domestic production in the Netherlands. Now, that's actually a bit of a problem the domestic production in the Netherlands because um, the Dutch shut down on production and it's on a steeply declining trend over the past few years because they've been experiencing earthquakes in the north of the country where these gas fields are. So that's meant that reliance on Russian gas has actually sort of increased over that period of time. But yes, there are four pipelines that bring gas into Europe. Uh, the one that one that, that that I was talking about, the one through the Ukraine supplies a bunch of Central European countries. Um, and that's the one that's of course been fairly had a fair bit of spare capacity. And and and,
0: and again, and as you were saying, Russians want to the... shut that down basically and move it up to Nord Stream two, which is the second pipeline that goes through the Kind of the north sea into into europe which is directly from russia into europe they want to use that instead of going through ukraine and- that's my
2: ukraine. sense of it of course russia yeah. hasn't said that yeah it's important to note that that's not that's not russia's stated intention but it would be it would clearly be another lever another bit of pressure to bring to bear on the ukraine if Nord stream 2 were to operate because that's 55 billion cubic meters of gas right there bypassing the ukraine and if you take a, the second pipeline that uh the second north european or the third north european pipeline if you take north stream one north stream two and then the third pipeline that runs from belarus into poland and germany then you would get in total about 160 billion cubic meters that's almost sort of half of what what europe gets from or more than half of what europe gets from russia in a, in a year so at that point there's huge you know, russia is in a hugely strong position when it comes to negotiating with the ukraine the other point to make is that um, the Gazprom's agreement with the Russian, with the Ukrainian uh, pipeline distributor, Naftogas, runs out in 2024. So right now, there's a long-term contract and a long-term commitment to supply a certain volume of gas to the Ukraine, but that's all up for grabs in 2024. So if you get Nord Stream 2 up and running before then, then I think... We're going back to that scenario of continued interference in the Ukraine. That's a very powerful lever. Yeah.
0: So 40% probability of, of no invasion, but regardless, there's still maybe global oil prices come in a bit, but gas prices, natural gas prices going into Europe remain elevated. And of course, the uncertainty around the uh, the, the supplies will remain very, very high going forward. Let me, one other question about that, before we move on to the other scenarios. It, it seems, it, you know, from a European perspective, that this this is this is a bad arrangement that they need to be working regardless of what happens. You know, even if Russian pulled all hundred thirty thousand troops off the border and went back to their barracks, after all this, wouldn't you really be working pretty hard to get off of Russian gas? I mean, LNG seems the most likely way you would go. And, and by the way, I, I just saw a statistic. I think if you look at the share of gas, natural gas coming into Europe, LNG is now the highest share. It's it's higher than Russian. Mm. It's, it's more than a third. Yes, yeah, and yeah. it's rising very quickly. But it feels like you would just go into hyperdrive on LNG, liquefied natural gas, and try to get that from you know Middle East, maybe from the U.S. I, I don't know. You know that kind of thing. Is that is that is that part of the discussion? It must. It, you would it, think it is.
2: Be, it, yeah. it, it certainly is. And and you're right. Um, LNG supplies since, since the start of this year have really ramped up, and there've been many. You know the stories of, of, of vessels just queuing to get into deep sea, deep sea ports in France and in southern, southern Europe uh, to offload their stocks. Um, there's, a, there's a, of course, a capacity constraint there. You can only offload so much and then you've got a capacity constraint at regasification plants uh, because the liquefied natural gas has to be gasified again and then sent up through a pipeline. But that broader a story of why on earth is Europe not doing more to actually diversify away from Russia? I think this is also a typically European problem, once again. (laughs) So Europe has taken a bunch of measures over the last 10 years to improve its gas security and, and its gas efficiency in particular. So it all started out with having gas pipes flowing through Europe, carrying gas from Russia across European countries, but they only went in one direction, or they largely went in one direction, which was to their destination. So if you had, you couldn't do effective demand management as a result. So then gas interconnectors were improved to allow gas to flow back and that improved energy efficiency. Uh, at the same time, deep-sea ports started to be built to increase the capacity for LNG. And now, and all of that takes time, and also I guess it occurs at a typically European pace because there are 27 member nations to deal with an agreement that has to be, you know, you've got to get a great agreement from all sides before you can do something big. So now I guess what this shows is that energy security simply is really top of the agenda and having a unified... Energy storage solution, for instance, is quite important. So there are gas storage facilities across Europe, but each country does its own thing. Uh, That's also not an optimal arrangement. You actually need Europe to be acting as one in buying and storing gas and agreeing to distribute it across countries. You've got to have um, greater uh, ability to to source LNG. That's not an overnight solution. In addition to having to build ports, lots of LNG is supplied on on long-term commitments. So actually diverting LNG is not that straightforward. Um, You've got to scale up renewables. That's got to be part of the solution. So it is possible, for instance, to double the base of installation of solar PV. Um, And and, and you've got to do more effective uh, demand-side management and energy conservation measures. So a whole bunch of measures have to come together. Uh, Problem is that none of that's, of course, overnight. So Russian gas dependency doesn't really go away that soon. It's also really interesting. One more thing I'll say about it, which is Russia's own perspective on this. So in 2020, um, Putin brought in a, a Russia Energy Security Act, uh, which, which sees um, Russian plans to diversify away from Europe up to 2035. So Putin really wants to sell more gas to Asia. But if he's going to do that, then you know, Europe had better sit up and pay attention and work a lot harder to diversify away from Putin.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And I guess yeah. just as a quick sidebar, Exacerbating all of this, of course, was Germany's, Germany's decision back under Angela Merkel to mothball all the nuclear uh, uh, facilities for electricity. So they became very reliant on natural gas to power their electric utilities. And that's why almost half of the gas they consume comes from Russia because they're so dependent on it. Just to, just something to keep in mind.
2: Absolutely. That was a big energy policy mistake if ever. I saw one. That was just such a knee-jerk reaction to Fukushima. Yeah. Right,
0: which was the Japanese facility was that was yes. nailed by the uh, earthquake and tsunami. Um, okay, let's move on. Uh, so 40% probability, no invasion. We kind of talked about that. Now, let's go down the other prop- part of the probability tree, and that is invasion. And kind of lay that out, because there's different versions of this scenario. So give us a sense of that.
2: So we've talked a little bit about it already, and we've mentioned the Donbass region and the uh, and 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 the possibility of invading there, and I mentioned Donetsk and Lugansk. So this again takes us back to 2014. So a little bit of a little bit of history again, I guess, when um, Russia essentially supported separatists in two eastern provinces, and these eastern provinces declared themselves as quasi-autonomous states, and and they've been basically fighting ever since with the Ukraine. Uh, Russia claims not to you know, be supporting them, but of course it is. Um, and a protocol was actually signed in 2015 called the Minsk Protocol that sought to bring all this to an end. So to have a ceasefire there, to have these provinces actually federalize and set their own foreign policy. That protocol never came about. And my feeling is that you know a big win for Putin would be to actually get that protocol revived and to see eastern these two provinces in eastern Ukraine be firmly within, you know, in be firmly in his hands. Um, just as much as Crimea is in his hands right now, so I guess one of the parts down to to invasion would be to, to say that actually Putin is not going to achieve that through diplomatic means, and therefore simply has to send troops into that part of that part of Ukraine, uh, and actually into the wider eastern part of Ukraine, which is called the Donbas region. Um, that's a right. fair, that's actually a fairly big region, and it could be quite difficult for him to even hold on to that region for a long period of time. But it's certainly doable. And he may even then to send a message to the West and to the to the Ukrainian regime, go beyond the Donbass region. So so so, so sort of extend a little bit further west, and that would be one one scenario. Um, it's what, do
0: you, what kind of probability? Okay, now we're down the the uh, incursion invasion probability uh, part of the tree. What what and that has a sixty percent probability all in. What what percent of the total uh, possible range of outcomes would be this, okay, I'm going to uh, invade uh, the eastern provinces, the Donbass region of Ukraine, and and stop there, or go a little bit further into the western part. But that's that scenario, what kind of probability would you attach to that? That's
2: my main incursion scenario. Okay. Everything else I see is in the tail. <laughs> so I'd be putting upwards of 50% on that one. And
0: that's 50% of... of any possibility well, of so any possibility.
2: That's full, okay. full I'd be putting somewhere between fifty to 54 percent probability on that occurring. Okay. So if I put if I put forty percent on no invasion and I'm putting no. up to fifty to fifty three percent on this particular outcome, that's ah, the deal.
0: Okay. So this is the most in your view likely scenario.
2: Yeah. Yes. That's that's what so I would so see as the most this, likely. This
0: would almost this would be your baseline then.
2: It it kind of is in terms of in, in, yeah. in terms of his actions, yes.
0: Okay, interesting. Okay, very interesting. Uh, And okay, so let's uh, think about that for a second in terms of the economic implications. Or first of all, uh, it sounds like if he does that, there's going to be some reaction from the West, from Europe and the US. So in in that scenario, what kind of response do you think we'd see here?
2: So I think there's got to be some reaction. And from the US, I think there's got to be a fairly clear reaction. I'm less convinced about what Europe might do and how Europe might play along to anything that the US does. So for so many reasons, it's important for the US to stand up to any incursion into, into Donbas, including wanting to send the Chinese a clear message about international politics. Um, so that, that, that that's clear. It's less clear that um, the Europeans would, at this point, be completely unified in their response because we'd have to look at what exactly it is that the U.S. does. Now, there are a number of options that have been outlined. It might be worth just stepping through some of these. Uh, these include sanctioning individuals in, in uh, the Russian government or, and or in Russian companies and extending that out potentially to include even Putin himself. Uh, there could be sanctions levied on banks. Now, don't forget that, the, that, that these sanctions to some extent already exist russian banks etc have been sanctioned since 2014 in the crimea crisis so now we're talking about ramping up those sanctions um, there is the possibility of of actually killing the nord stream 2 project now we can talk about how that could be done and whether it would be feasible to do that but there's certainly the possibility that exists of actually sanctioning nord stream 2 itself um, and, and 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 i guess what else could they what what, what else could what what else could um, America do, what else could the US do? Those kind of become pretty big, pretty big sanctions, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could, as a, as a big, potentially a fairly big measure, exclude Russia from the international payment system, known as SWIFT, um, so that Russian companies seeking to do business and make payments, at least abroad, would not have access to a payment facilitation system. They'd have to really resort to fairly old fashioned methods like sending faxes in order to get payments done which would be very, very costly for them. Actually, it would be a big blow for Gastrom, because Gastrom, of course, wants European revenues and it wouldn't be able to clear its payments very easily. Um, again, we can talk about how feasible all of that is, and that's where I, I, I struggle, because a lot of these measures involve getting the Europeans to buy into these sanctions. Swift is, Swift is headquartered in Belgium. It's, it's a cooperative, it's a neutral company. So to get the Europeans to agree to actually bar Russia from Swift and that's a big step. Nord Stream, too, is a big step. Um, you'd, you'd likely see a certain amount of European discontent in terms of agreeing to sanction Nord Stream itself. Don't forget that some of Nord, some Nord Stream activities have been sanctioned for, under US sanctions for several years, particularly the laying of pipelines. But I think we're talking about something bigger now. We're talking about actually blocking Nord Stream and ever allowing it to become operational. I think that would meet a fair amount of resistance. Um, I suppose if you come to sanctioning Russian banking system en masse completely blocking them out of the international system, that's going to hurt the Russian people a lot. Uh, You could argue that that's not the desire of such sanctions, but you could equally argue that this time it has to be because of the nature of of Putin's actions. So there are lots of of challenges with these sanctions, but those are basically the types of sanctions that, that could be levied. And I think that um, some of the harshest sanctions probably won't be levied in this, in this particular scenario, uh, not because perhaps, I, I don't know, again, it's, I, I don't really have a clear line of sight into the U.S. administration, but even if the U.S. administration wants to levy every single one of these sanctions, I'm not sure the Europeans would buy into it.
0: Right. So, so there, you know, there would be saying, oh, Chris, did you want to say something? Go ahead.
1: I was just going to ask, uh, so this scenario excludes any type of military response, at least not a direct one from the US or Europe. Is that correct? Is that in your yeah. tail?
2: It's, it's a good question. I think we've constructed all our invasion scenarios, incursion stroke invasion scenarios to exclude a, a military response from NATO, because that I think would be really very much a complete game changer. This is already a game changer, particularly our tail scenario, where we do see a, a broader invasion of the Ukraine. That's already a game changer uh, for NATO to take the step forward and send its own Planes, point, planes and infantry and cavalry, and I think that that that's something that could spark a lot of international sort of ructions. So, although there area, again, there, oh, could
1: sorry, no? oh, <laughs> there could be a range. sorry, there could be a range. It could be certainly just assistance to Ukrainian forces. Is that part of your scenario? I, I think, oh, that, or that's a military part of the scenario that's already happening?
2: So it's actually sending sending arms to additional. To, additional And in fact, you can build it out further, uh, if you like, because Russia has, of course, got so many frozen conflicts around the region in Georgia, Chechnya, et cetera. So you could easily see in a scenario like this that over a longer period of time, um, Western allies actually starts to fight proxy wars with Russia in those regions. So I think it's very destabilizing for the geopolitics of the region as a whole. Uh, and we're not just limited, the scenario is not just limited to Putin sending troops in and then facing sanctions. There is a slow burn, uh, which is very geopolitically negative for the region.
0: So in this scenario where uh, Russia invades the Donbass region, there will be some sanctions. Uh, what kind of, obviously, hard to know if how far the US and the West will go, the Europeans will go. Uh, My read on what you're saying is uh, they can't go all the way because there just won't be that kind of support from Europe to do that. Uh, But, you know, maybe uh, Nord Stream 2 will be put on ice for a little bit of time, at least some period of time. I'd be surprised if that wasn't the case. Uh, uh, President Biden said that was going to happen. So if that doesn't happen, I'd be surprised. The German chancellor didn't (laughs) didn't deny or say yes or no to that, but it sounds like that would happen. Uh, There would be sanctions on individuals, no doubt about that. Uh, There would possibly be some uh, restrictions on the use of international payment system, the SWIFT system, but that might, that feels like a bridge. That might be a little bit too far under the scenario. Okay. So if that's kind of sort of the, did I miss anything, Chris?
1: I just sorry. It's, it's complex. Yeah. So any other uh, uh, trade restriction? Uh, uh, my understanding is Russia is a large exporter of aluminum, uh, palladium, other things that are uh, critical for the auto industry. Do you see those as being sanctions or uh, some type of trade restrictions let's, as well? Let's, take that one.
2: let's let's take that one separately because that's a, another very complex political discussion. I think there could be other trade sanctions and particularly restrictions on imports of machineries, machinery, cars and that kind of thing to really to hurt Russia. So telecoms, equipment, mobile phones, TV sets, cars, et cetera, these could all be, these could all face sanctions entering Russia uh, which would then lead to, you know, yeah, I you, you can imagine thinking... what would happen to Russia. You'd have a collapse of the ruble. You'd have inflation. You'd have a massive contraction in consumption and so on and so forth. I think Sorry in markets, scenario though,
0: it, I, I don't think they want to sanctions that are going to be more, you know, net detrimental to Western economies, to the European economy. They don't want to do that.
2: That would be very difficult.
0: Yeah. I I suspect they won't want to go down that in this scenario that I'd be surprised if they did that. So because it's like shooting your, your, you know, uh, what is it? What's that? What's that phrase? Uh, Shooting yourself in the foot. Cutting off your nose to spite your face, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. Is that a European phrase? Uh, It's definitely,
2: definitely, definitely a uh, English phrase. Yeah, English Uh, phrase. Something similar in one or two other European languages. Uh,
0: Yeah, but let me ask on that scenario: what is the economic implications of that? I mean, is there? It doesn't feel like that's going to result in significant turmoil in financial markets. Maybe, maybe briefly when it's all happening, because there's the fog of what's happening, and you don't know where it's going to all land. But not. Not a prolonged period of financial turmoil. Not a big impact on oil or gas prices. You know they'll, they'll remain elevated because there's going to be a risk premium, and they're kind of like what we talked about under the other the, the no invasion scenario. But it doesn't feel like this has big global macroeconomic implications. Of
2: its own, its 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 impact is very largely limited to Russia. I think what matters is what Putin does next. So as you said. Maybe Nord Stream 2 doesn't even have to be officially sanctioned. Europeans can simply drag the heels for a couple of years, and that's that's enough to do that, whether they try and figure out whether they should or shouldn't impose sanctions on Nord Stream 2 and kill the project. Um, You impose impose sanctions on some Russian companies, maybe even stop a few companies from from using Swift, but let other companies continue to operate, put some sanctions on on, um, exports of, of manufacturers into Russia. This is largely a Russian problem. I think the question then becomes, what does Putin do next? And in order for Putin to, um, you know, put pressure on the world, he's going to have to le- rely on the two levers—the only two levers he has—is oil and gas, and particularly, particularly, gas into Europe. So I guess he would want to—he would want to foster a divisive, a sense of divisiveness in Europe, and a clear way to do that would be to um, show who's in charge when it comes to gas supplies coming into Europe. So you could see that he would use that lever a bit, maybe not a whole lot because that's clearly detrimental to him as well. But you could see some innovation, some reduction in oil supply into Europe, some reduction in gas supply into Europe. Maybe not a whole lot. We we saw some reduction in gas supply in January, for instance, um, and then a a pickup in recent days. But if we go back to that kind of level coming out of winter through the summer, that puts a fair bit of pressure on Europe when it comes to filling up its its reserves and, and boosting its storage ahead of next winter. So you could see that you'd have a bit more pressure on European gas prices in this scenario for a few quarters at least, until the situation normalizes, potentially even a bit of a uh, bit, bit of bit of elevated tension in Brent for a few quarters, but nothing serious, nothing nothing that's that's going to cause financial markets to melt down.
0: Okay, so uh, just to to summarize, uh, the 50, 55 percent probability goes to this: uh, Russia invades Dumbass region. There's some sanctions put on by the U.S. and Europe. Russia responds, but this is Temp, kind of a temporary dislocation to energy markets and financial markets and you know life goes on and you know tensions remain high but they don't boil over and the 40 percent probability is no invasion so you were kind of at 90 95 so now the remaining part of the distribution of possible outcomes is kind of out there on the tail on the dark side uh you know maybe five to ten percent kind of probabilities how would you characterize that dark scenario
2: so i say that that 5% in that tail, that's, again, it's a range of different things that could happen there. So to the full 5%, if I look at it, you know, just coming out, up to that 5%, that dark scenario is uh, invasion on the eastern and the northern front. So that troop buildup in the north with the border with Belarus on the east, um, there's a simultaneous incursion. Putin marches into Kiev, topples the regime. You've got tanks rolling down Kiev. And I think at Kiev. this point, that's Kiev. that's a we, very, we very...
0: Kiev, sorry? Kiev. Kiev. We
2: were I beg your pardon. Thank you, you Kiev. Okay. At, at this point, it's incredibly negative for Europe. Um, you know, we go back to those comments about Europe facing prospects of a war for the first time in 70 years and the re-emergence of those Cold War divisions. So I think Europe is in is in emergency mode at this point. Uh, so that that of its own is a very negative scenario, and it invites the. I think it really opens the way to inviting a united European and American response in terms of sanctions against against Russia. This is much more national security over energy security, whereas I guess that first scenario was more Europe, Europe you know, puts its energy security first over, over national security. So I think you should get very, very significant sanctions against Putin at this point, including shutting Gastrom out of Swift, shutting uh, the entire system out of Swift, sanctioning, you know, completely sanctioning um, Russian financial system, possibly even sanctioning Putin himself. And Russia just becomes a complete pariah state which I guess, uh, you know, given, given how the, the, the FX reserves that Putin has and the fact that he's been building what they call a fortress Russia for the past few years, he may even be willing to countenance. But it's not going to be pleasant for Russia. I think what then matters is what Putin does next. And again, he comes back to his two levers. And I put very low probability on that, that he would actually then um, go out and really, really, really shoot himself in the foot. Um, by turning, turning off the oil and gas taps or significantly reducing the oil and gas taps. But that's the scenario we've chosen to model as our dark scenario, where Putin actually does that. Not only does he invade Ukraine, both from the north and the east, not only, does he, not only is he then subject to very significant sanctions from the west, but he then takes that additional step of, of wanting to hurt Europe in particular by, by significantly restricting oil and gas supply. And that, I think, is quite negative, because at this point, we're facing, one, a geopolitical paradigm shift, B, a loss of gas supply that actually you can't replace that easily, Um, a significant reduction in oil that can't be rerouted that easily. Um, So this is all just very, very risk-off. It's a very risk-off environment.
0: Right. So that feels like that scenario, which broadly defines the tail of the distribution, sounds like you're saying more like 5% than 10% has is as lots of different shades of darkness obviously and the, and the shade that we decided to actually uh quantify through our modeling is way out on the tail I mean just kind of at the end of the distribution of possible outcomes in your mind is that a fair characterization
2: that's a fair characterization i think for for, for putin to restrict oil and gas to that degree that it results in a huge pickup in european inflation for instance um that would be very, very damaging for Putin, as much as it would be damaging for you the you
0: kind of, I saw your face. So uh, you your know, I'm always,
1: I'm always in the tails. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're not talking World War III. We're not talking about, right? No, we're not. Actual oh, conflict, oh, right? okay. I could certainly paint a much darker scenario for you, if, if you'd like. So you're stopping well, there. So you're, it, just to quantify, right? Because I think yeah, clients right, right, are right. So uh, talking one. about, well, what if there is more of a... Armed conflict, right? We're talking comparisons to World War II, well, yeah. Sudetenland, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that's we're really not it. going to that degree. I mean, we're no saying, enough. At worst, in this very dark scenario, um, the Russians do take over Ukraine, but then the border stops there. There's no additional incursion. Made, and certainly troops are massing along that border and it's hostile, but uh, we're not going beyond that in terms of a, an armed conflict.
2: That's right, and I think going back to some of your earlier comments, Chris, we'll still see proxy wars being fought. We'll still see uh, arms being supplied to Ukrainian troops, and it's not going to be easy for Putin to hold the Ukraine for a long period of time. So, you know, there's plenty of potential for conflict in that region, uh, and and of course, it's an incredibly dark geopolitical narrative for for Eastern Europe and for Russia. But I think if we Handicap that at about 3% probability. That's out in the tail, but not way out of the tail. I think you could go much further out into the tail with having full-blown conflicts and NATO sending troops in, et cetera, et cetera. But um, honestly, to me, that feels like that's incredibly remote.
1: Sure, sure. No, but I think it's important to, to quantify. Yeah, no, it's important. It's important
2: to lay them out. Yes, I agree. Yeah.
0: Okay. And so- even
1: under this scenario, then trade is not restricted. It's not uh, voluntarily restricted. Per se, right, They were still saying that gas. the Europeans would still be willing to purchase gas, other goods.
2: Uh, well, I, base that, I mean, I based that on the entire history of the Soviet Union when even at the darkest mm-hmm. hour of relations between the West and during yep. the Cold War between the West and the Soviet Union, gas continued to flow into Europe. Um, so I'd, I'd much rather characterize that scenario via Putin doing something negative on oil and gas rather than the West um, clamping down on Russian oil and gas.
0: So what does that mean, this scenario now kind of on, on the tail that we've kind of I think nicely uh, uh, put into relief, what does it mean for the economy, for the Russian economy, for the European economy, for the global economy?
2: So the Russian economy is hit so badly in the first scenario and it gets hit much worse in the second, of course. It's the same it's the same as the, uh, the ruble plummets, inflation spikes, consumption slows down, consumer disposable incomes are really badly hit. Um, so that's, that's and then similar sorts of things would happen in the Ukraine as well. So we mustn't just think of Russia, but spare a thought for Ukraine yeah, and what happens there more, with war on its soil. Um, but when we, come to, when we come to Europe, this is much worse for Europe because we'd actually see a significant pickup in inflation. So we modeled gas prices, European gas prices at about close to 180 euros per megawatt hour. That's roughly what we saw back in December when one of the big pipelines actually completely reduced supply for a few days. Um, and European gas price futures spiked immediately to that kind of level. So if we see that those sorts of prices coming back, maybe it won't, won't stabilize at 180, maybe it comes down to 150 after a brief spike. But nonetheless, if it stays there for a few quarters because Putin deliberately restricts gas supply considerably, that's very, very negative for, for European inflation and European growth. I mean, there's going to be a huge squeeze on disposable incomes. We'd be worried about corporate investment. We'd be worried about um, corporate profits and revenues. So it will be a very dark picture for Europe for some time to come. And that's also going to spill over to to the global economy because we see elevated oil prices for a while. We we are actually modeling Brent at $150 a barrel for several quarters. So that's going to have a a knock-on effect on on U.S. and Asian inflation. Um, And then we've got to think about accommodative responses because this is clearly an emergency situation. So in Europe, you can see that fiscal policy and monetary policy will have to work together, but then it's a bit unclear as to how each will operate. Would fiscal policy choose to help households and help corporates or one and not the other? Um, Would monetary policy adopt a wait-and-see approach because it's such a negative emergency situation, but then that may have some negative consequences for inflation expectations? Would the Fed do something different because it's less of a problem? It'll be less of an emergency problem in the U.S.,
0: yeah, okay. All right, that's a pretty dark scenario. Um, Alrighty. Uh, well, a lot to think about, and I'm sure between now and uh, next week, when we uh, have the webinar, uh, there'll be a lot of changes in the moving parts that are changing pretty rapidly here. So we'll, we'll follow this very carefully and report back and make any changes to our forecast and scenarios that we think are, are uh, important to do. Uh, any last um, comments? Anything we missed in the conversation? I thought it was a, uh, I thought it was a very thorough kind of discussion of possible outcomes here. Do we miss anything?
1: Got a um, quick question. I, I've heard yeah, something sure, about, around yeah. timing. I heard this uh, statement from some military commanders that um, if there were was to be an invasion of any type, it would occur within the next few weeks, while the hard while the ground is still hard. And that because uh, once you get into the spring and it becomes very muddy, troop movements become very difficult. Is that you give any credence to that or any weight to that type of argument that if something's going to happen, it's going to happen soon? Otherwise, we'll be in a stalemate uh, for a while.
2: I mean, I've heard yet another date put out there, which was the 20th of this month after the closure of the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, that it would wait until then um, to. to to make sure that you know, the world was at peace and people could enjoy the Winter Olympics before invading. So it may be very, 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 very soon. There's certainly a case to be made for doing it sooner rather than later. Um, but I guess he's also got to think about the optimal, optimal European response. The longer he has, uh, more time he has to play with, the more chance he has of, of, of driving a wedge between the US and Europe. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I get the feeling that he's just an incredibly strategic player who weighs all these things up very carefully.
0: All right. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Gaurav. That was very helpful and uh, putting it, you know, and um, you know, making it very clear, you know, how we're thinking about this. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll update uh, our listeners and clients as we go along here. Uh, but um, thank you so much. And uh, with that, I think we're going to call it a, a podcast. So thanks everyone for listening in and we'll talk to you soon.